Uh, and that is if you're on a tablet or smartphone or some other device, we're in 1 Peter chapter 4. Start the reading of Dr. James uh, and the pastoral epistles. But uh, before John, June, and Revelation, it's page 1153. We didn't design it this way, but uh, to have the building project, to have the this building, these stones, um, distressed, uh, the disruption, the uh, sense of dislocation, whilst we're reading through 1 Peter, um, a letter to those who are scattered, who are exiles, who are kind of aliens and strangers in their own land. And the, the trajectory that Peter is encouraging his listeners, his readers, to, to be on is, is forward-looking, future-looking. Hopefully, if you, I don't know if there's a, if there are newcomers or visitors here, but if you came in and you looked at this building, hopefully you didn't, I'm pretty sure you didn't think, um, oh, it's in a bit of a mess at the moment. I wonder when they'll, they'll put it back to how it was. We're not doing that. I, you just instinctively know if you come in here, oh, there's something going on. I wonder what it will look like. All this, um, all this kind of distress and dysfunction is, is surely one day going to be something new and marvellous. Uh, indeed it is. And as we naturally instinctively think about in this physical context, so spiritually too, as we go through distressing times or hard times through suffering, Peter is encouraging us in this letter, as he encourages his encourages hearers then, to look forward, to look ahead. So our sermon series, Living in the Light of Eternity. Let's read from um, chapter 4, verse 1. In fact, I'll just give it a little bit of context because um, Peter's been talking about, um, you see the, the heading in, uh, in the, the Bible, we've got suffering for doing good. Uh, he starts that finally in verse 8, and uh, he just says in verse 18, For Christ also suffered, he acknowledges that these Christians are suffering. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And in those next few verses, he uh, talks about uh, Jesus then preaching to uh, other souls. It's a kind of complex little passage, which we'll just put to one side. It's kind of parenthetical anyway. And we come to verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because those who suffered in their bodies have finished with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join in with their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to the human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore be alert and of sober mind, so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply. Because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. 
Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful servants of God's grace in its various forms. If you speak, you should do as one who speaks the very words of God. And if you serve, you should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Father, we ask by your spirit that you would speak to us through your word. And that as you encouraged and taught those people back there, back then, you would strengthen, encourage, inspire, maybe convict us here now. We want to live lives now in the light of eternity. So increase our vision. Give us greater glimpses into the glory of eternal life. Speak to us now, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I've uh, entitled my talk this evening, Living for God, which I borrowed from the... uh, New Testament part of the Bible, you've got in front of you there. Brackets. Living in the count of ten. Living in the count of ten. Um, Hopefully it'll become clear what I mean by that. But uh, often as you read these letters, you read these passages, you're you're looking for uh, a kind of controlling verse or theme, an idea. And I think it's probably there in verse seven of the passage that we read. The end of all things is near. Therefore be alert and of sober mind, so that you may pray. The end of all things is near. But there is a current reality that Peter is speaking to these uh, Christians, uh, little groupings scattered around. They're they're living in hardship. They've been displaced from their homes. They're probably living in in abject poverty, real scarcity of uh, resources. They're living in fear of, uh, well, maybe... Pagans, as Peter refers to them, they're uh, jeering at them and uh, laughing at them, scorning them. But probably greatest fear of the emperor himself, uh, who's casting off uh, huge numbers of these Christians to the Colosseum elsewhere for uh, sport and food for the lions. So he acknowledges that there's suffering in the here and now. And as I read in verse 18, we join with Christ, who also suffered. Once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. He was put to death in the body and made alive in the spirit. Therefore, since Christ suffered, Peter says, arm yourselves. Interesting use of that word, isn't it? There's a, there's a battle that we fight, there's a battle that rages. Arm yourselves with the same attitude because those who have suffered in their bodies have finished with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. So we don't live for the things that we know are wrong. We live for the one who we know is the source of all goodness and who is right. Easy. <laughs> I've written in my notes, YBH. I, I often discipline myself to do that. YBH stands for yes, but how? Yes, but how? Whenever a preacher, preacher makes it sense, live for God, don't live for the enemy. Do what you know is right. Yes. I mean, we, could, we all want to do that, don't we? We all want to 
to live the best life. Yes. But how? I'm, I'm struggling. I, I'm finding this hard. How do I live for God? I want to suggest that the answer is you live for God in the count of ten. What does that mean? There's a guy called, uh, he's a guy called Erling Kaggle. K-A-G-G-E. So I've pronounced that correctly. He's Norwegian. Uh, he's a philosopher, he's an explorer, he's a writer. Uh, and his book, a recent book, uh, entitled Silence, was uh, the book of the week on Radio 4 a few months ago. And I listened to it for serialization. He's an extraordinary man. He's uh, completed the, the, the world international three peaks. So it's not your sort of Ben Meadows, Scarpa, Pike, and Snowden in, in this country, although that's, that's a, a feat enough in itself. He's, he's made it to the summit of the, or the top of the North Pole. He's made it all the way unaccompanied, unsupported rather, just carrying his own um, kit and, and resources to the South Pole and his high Mount Everest. Uh, and it was while he was journeying to the North Pole with his accomplice, a chap called Borg Alsons, that he tells his story within the context of silence. Um, they were in that, I mean, it's an extremely harsh environment, and they were doing it, as I say, unsupported, so people flying in or uh, other teams uh, giving them provisions, so they carried everything that they needed for the trip, uh, either on their backs or dragging sledges. And in that extreme environment, temperatures, you know, minus 40, 50, 60, where your body is doing all it can just to stay alive. Although they were on track, I mean, they were extremely fatigued. Their, their muscle mass was depleted, uh, their reserves were running out. They, uh, you know, they begin, began to wonder, even though they were on track, whether they were actually going to, to make it at all. It's the most extreme of environments that assaulted their body. They were on course. But they were suffering. And I wonder just, as I pause there in the story, I wonder whether that's what some of us feel tonight about the, the Christian expedition. That it's, um, I, I'm kind of, kind of on course, I'm, I'm going, I'm putting one foot in front of another, but it's, it's tough. It, it feels hard. It, it could be because of the external environments. Peter refers to, to pagans and hunters who live a very different lifestyle and pour scorn on those who seek to live for Jesus Christ. Is, is that something you experience in, in the workplace, in the office, maybe in the house that you live in? Um, uh, the, the connections that you have, they don't understand your priorities. They don't understand your values and the way in which you seek to live them out. Uh, in fact, they make it difficult for you. They undermine your name and response, your sense of self. Is it because of external circumstances and the external hostile environment that you're finding the Christian journey tough? Or, or maybe it's internally. It could be that you rather like uh, Karg and Alzheimer's uh, on that trip to the North Pole. They just found that their inner resources were depleted. They found that their energy levels were running out. They found it was a struggle just to put one foot in front of the other. Is that maybe your experience of the Christian life right now, that somehow God doesn't seem quite enough? I come to church, I sing the songs, I try and read my Bible, I try and spend time in prayer, and yet somehow it's almost as if God is kind of holding out on me for 
that job that I've longed for, that relationship that I'd love, just for a slightly different station in life than the one I have at the moment. I've been promised by all the kind of self-help books that if I just, you know, if I just desire it, that'll be enough. God will give you your desires. And yet what I desire, it doesn't quite come to fruition in my experience, and I'm, I'm struggling. External circumstances, internal energy levels. I wonder if it's one or other of those for you. So here is this guy, Carl, and his accomplice, Arsene, and they are relentlessly making their way towards the North Pole. And suddenly, in the middle of this vast expanse of nothingness, there's just these two guys not seeing anything or anyone for days on end. And suddenly, a plane, uh, they hear the unmistakable noise of, a, of, a, of the engine of a plane flying from behind them, but flies over above them. And um, Card recalls that the, the pilot of the plane must have been as surprised to see two figures on this massive polar ice cap as they were to see a plane flying over them. And the plane sort of flies around, and clearly the pilot's thinking, oh, that's nice, okay. And so he, he banks around. And as he, as he circles around to, to fly over them again, out of the plane, a package drops and lands thump on the ice few meters away and flies off. So Cargan and Alzheimer go to the package, open it up, and they see that it's basically an emergency food ration. It's full of protein-rich food and carbohydrates and drink. <sighs> so they stop immediately, they just put up this tent shelter and they drag the package in and they unpack it completely and they get out all the different component parts, all the food, they just lay it out in front of them. And Carl describes what happened next. See, he was ready to tuck straight <laughs> I mean, he was just so hungry and here's stuff that if he just, if he just, he can't get it in his body quick enough. But Alzheimer says, wait. Let's count to ten. And even though that suggestion screamed in complete opposition to everything that Carl wanted to do, he agreed with his accomplice. And so they sat in front of this feast and slowly and deliberately they counted to ten. And in his book, Silence, Carl describes how those 10 seconds or so were some of the most rich and precious moments that he's ever experienced in his life. The promise of food laid out in front of him enriched their starved experience. So that even though he wasn't eating the food, because he knew the food was there, he could describe those moments in his emaciated state as rich and precious. How do we arm ourselves to have the same attitude as Christ? How do we live for Christ when the going is tough? when I don't feel like living for Christ. I live in the counts of ten. I remind myself 
that I am living in the light of eternity. Heaven in the Bible is described as a feast. And in Jesus Christ, all Christian brothers and sisters have a feast. That if they, if they are not able fully to partake of it right now, in the count of ten, they can know the rich, precious joy of what that feast will be as a present, experienced reality. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, verse 1 of chapter 4, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. They do not live, verse 2, the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God, because they know that the now is in the light of the then. They are living in the camp of ten. By contrast, pagans don't do that. As Peter refers to those pagans are not, um, they're not godless and they're, they're, they're all sorts of gods. The pagans, they're quite spiritual people in, in general. Uh, they just, oh yeah, for anything, whatever it is, where's the next hit, where's the next fix, where's the next buzz, the next high, they're running around. That's how you used to live, Peter inferred in verse 3. And they're surprised you don't want to join them in their reckless wild living, verse 4. They heap abuse on you. They fill themselves now with things that will not last and don't satisfy. He lists some of them uh, uh, just over the, the page. No, it's not. It's in, uh, sorry, verse 3. Debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. You maybe have experienced something of what Peter's referring to there. I can remember back in the day, I went to a party or two, maybe had a drink or two, too many. Uh, kind of loose talk, things I maybe regret. And the following morning, I always had to encounter the morning after, the night before. And that empty feeling, that, that soul-destroying feeling, literally that rubbing out the soul, that emptiness, that, oh, the regrets. Or the idolatry, detestable idolatry. When we're struggling, when we're wanting to boost ourselves up and we think, well, a little bit of retail therapy, that'll do the trick, I'll go and buy something. As if a piece of cloth or a cut of leather is somehow going to feed my soul. And yet I fall for it, because the idol has been talking to me. Peter rightly calls it detestable, because it, it isn't of the same order of the count of ten. I've been living in the here and now as if I'm for the here and now. No, I'm living in the here and now for eternity. That's what I hold out for. That's what feeds me. That's what fuels me. That's what enabled Kark in his situation to talk of a rich and precious ten seconds in his emaciated state. Verse 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind. I find those two things tend to go together. So that you can pray. So that we can see opportunities when we need to pray and when we want to pray. We're alert. In the, in the NIV, this is the, 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 the uh, New International Version, the B New International Version, TNIV, but in uh, its sort of predecessor, if you like, this verse was 
they, they translated the Greek slightly differently, same kind of sense. Uh, I quite like what the NIV had. It says, the end of all things is near, therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled. Be clear-minded and self-controlled. In order to live in the camp of ten, self-control. I, 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 I have a hunch, I may be wrong, but I have a hunch that when I say that phrase, a certain phrase comes as part of Christian living, and that's maybe one of them, to exercise self-control. And the immediate gut reaction is, oh, it, it sounds kind of dull, doesn't it? I'm going to a party, and I'm determined to dress up, look good, and exercise self-control. <laughs> Not a point, then. No, thanks, I'm enjoying this carrot juice. I'll just sit it quiet. <laughs> self-control. This is not, you know, it's not the kind of thing I really, this is the kind of, yeah, I really want to get some pushed all out of God, exercising self-control. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It, we sometimes hear it wrong, it's a, it, our gut reaction is oh, that's dull. Please don't think of self-control as, uh, and, and clear-mindedness as, as sort, of, um, sort, of, sort of dispassionate stoicism, as a kind of, you know, a kind of denial. This is actually where we engage. It's how we engage. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. Paul, in that letter there, talks about the sort of marks of death and then the marks of life. And the fruit of the Spirit is, is what brings life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. When we, when we practice those things, like you exercise a muscle, when you practice those things, you, you don't kill yourself, you don't, you, you don't die, you live. It's what brings you alive. And, and so as I become more alive, I elect to choose to do those things even more. I, I elect to choose to love someone. I elect to choose a, a posture of joy, of, of faithfulness, of, of kindness. Of, of gentleness, as I flex those muscles, I become more alive because more of the Spirit lives in me. Self-control brings me alive. That's why the New Testament talks about choosing life. Choose to walk by the Spirit. It's a choice. And here's the thing, if I could just refer back to the illustration I've been using with Irving Kark. They didn't have to count the ten. They chose to. Sat there, starving hungry, in desperate need of food and energy. And with that food and energy source already out in front of them, they chose self-control. And what was the fruit of it? What was the fruit of their self-control, of their count of ten? Well, can't describe it as the most rich and precious Ten seconds of his life. When we choose to live by the Spirit, and in this context here, as Peter teaches, when we choose clear-mindedness and self-control, we come alive. We experience even more of God and his goodness. We experience his energy. We experience his vitality. We experience his strength. We see him in the lives of others, in our own life, even more clearly, because God is at work in that count of ten. 
I don't want to say that, that Carl thought, I don't, know, I don't know what Carl thought, as his friend suggested, let's count to ten. I mean, he, he is hugely grateful that his friend suggested that because he wouldn't have done it. And so he's in the captain and thought, well, okay. So the captain, and he's, he's surprised to discover, on reflection, a rich joy and preciousness. It's the same, I want to suggest, in the spirit realm. As we, as we look to live for God, which sometimes means exercising self-control, we will be surprised to discover just what God does in us. That's how the kingdom works in our lives. Peter knows something of this in a transformation. If I just refer you back um, to chapter 2 of this same first Peter letter, he uses this really striking uh, metaphor uh, of Jesus. Chapter 2 and verse 4, he says, As you come to him, that's Jesus, the living stone. And again, we, we, you know, we're surrounded by a, a sort of visual aid of this. this uh, phrase of Peter's here we have I mean these are these arches here are made up of great big chunks of stone. And you, you wouldn't describe them they they just stood there for 130 odd years. Um, inanimate dead. Uh, it's precisely because they are inanimate and solid and dead that this building has become a bit like a sort of Oxbow Lake. When it, I guess when it was built it sort of made sense, but then the train and you know, all the housing down there and the footfall stopped going down the side of the church where the main entrance was, and the footfall went across the front of the church and the green and everything else. And you know, if these things had lived, if these were living, literally living stones, so hey guys, uh, we just need to just shuffle around, shuffle around, shuffle around, let's, let's make sense of this building. But these are dead stones, pretty heavy and difficult to move. That's why it's such a striking metaphor, repeater. You come to him with living, something that is solid and stands, but lives, breathes, moves. But look at this. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by human beings, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, verse 5, like living stones. What? We're being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are being transformed in a way that we could not imagine. So you can't imagine these stones living. So in the same way, in ways perhaps beyond our imagination, God is changing us, transforming us, building us into a people that make him look good. As we, as we live in the camp of ten, in the hardship and the suffering, when we're, as it were, hungry and starved, God is doing something as we seek to live now in the light of eternity. So back in chapter 4, uh, some of the outworkings of being alert and sober-minded. Love each other, verse 8, because love covers over a multitude of sins and offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. They had plenty to grumble about, those Christians back then. There were a lot of things that were not going well for them, and yet he says, love one another. One of the ways you can do it is offer hospitality. There are people who've been made homeless, people who've got nowhere to go, 
No food to eat, no bed to lie, no roof over their head. You have an offer of hospitality. Bring people into your home, your life. Open up yourselves to others. You say, well, I find them difficult. I, I don't really feel like it. Well, that's the time to count to ten. In light of all that you actually have and all that you will have fully in eternity. In light of the feast laid out for you, count the ten and know the rich preciousness of loving someone else when you don't feel like it, of offering hospitality when it doesn't feel like the thing you want to do. I, I've kind of lost count of my points at the number. We have quite a flow through people in the church, and it's kind of in my job description if I've kind of got such a thing to love people, <laughs> to love God, uh, and to love others. And plenty of times I've re- recognised an opportunity where an individual who kind of needs loving. And if I'm honest, and I'm just confessing now, I'm a human being uh, with fleshly elements that are not yet fully sanctified. There are times when I thought, oh, do we have to have them round, or a cup of tea, a cup of coffee, a meal, or whatever. Or just even spending time in a conversation when I'd rather be talking to a number of other people. I knew one individual in particular is no longer with us. The church had um, kind of moved on, but they were just mildly challenging. And most people found them that way, and so most people avoided them, and they would often be on their own. And I kind of knew that even though if I'm honest, I didn't feel like it, I'd, I'd count to ten. And I'd strike up some kind of conversation. It wasn't always easy. Here's the weird thing, over the weeks and the months and the years that this person was with us, and as I just spent time with them, weirdly, and again, this, this wasn't me, this was the, the inner transformation that God was working, this was the living stoneness that God was working in me. Weirdly, I found not only that I could love her in the Lord, but actually like her. I, I, I found that I was almost looking out for this person. Oh, they're not here. And weird. I feel strangely disappointed. I'm not going to have a chance to be with them this week. That's what happens in the counts of ten. When we discipline ourselves to live for him in the light of eternity, he affects that kind of transformation so that we can love. We can offer hospitality. Verse 11, we can speak. And in, in the transformative effect of the count of ten, as we speak the words of God, we will find not just nice platitudes, but as Paul says in Corinthians, words that strengthen or comfort or encourage. Prophetic words that unlock situations that bring release and life. We will find we will be agents of transformation for others as we speak the very words of God. Precisely because we're alert and of sober mind. That's why Peter writes that. It's vital that we don't miss these opportunities. But what else in verse 11, the second half? If you serve, serving in a way, we're human beings. We don't always feel like serving others. We don't always feel like putting ourselves out for others. I don't, anyway. On a regular basis, I'm alarmed at my selfishness. But in the count of ten, Living now in the light of eternity, when I think of what 
the king of heaven did to serve me, then how much more can I offer a little bit of service in the now, given all that he's opened up for me? And as I do that in a camp of ten, I find I'm serving with God's strength, not just my own. And it enables me to carry out whatever task it is. Living in the light of eternity, the end of all things is near, Peter says. I finish with this. Uh, as, I, as I listened to the serialization of this book and, and particularly to this story, I, I was struck by the story. I wasn't sure where he was going with it as, as he told the story much as I tried to tell the story this evening. Uh, and I was surprised by it. When, when they the, the put up the tent, and I was expecting to lay out all the food, and I was expecting a kind of food frenzy, just kind of literally face plant into the food, just gobbling it all up. And so when, when he said about his mate saying, no, no, let's count to ten, I thought, oh, that's quite a surprise. Count to ten. And, and they agreed, and they counted to ten. It was like, yeah, everything means, you know, sure, you can't go, who's so counterintuitive? I mean, it isn't what you feel like you do if you were in that situation. It was surprising. It, it, it somehow didn't feel right. And yet, and yet it was so compelling that he was able to describe those 10 seconds as being so rich and precious. And I believe him. I, and that, that story has said there, since I've done it, I've had a state of I've often thought about it. It, it's, it's, I found it so compelling. I want to suggest that in a similar way, as we keep in step with the Spirit, as we look to live now in light of eternity, as we prepare ourselves in tough times and hardship to count to ten, in order to discover rich and precious joy in the moment, I want to suggest that that's how we can continue to live for Jesus Christ. Let me end by quoting Peter. At the end of, uh, no, in the middle of chapter 2, verse 11 and verse 12. Dear friends, you and I, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us.